Mark chapter 14. Uh, tonight we're uh, in a passage, or a number of passages, I should say, about Peter. And we want to think together about temptation and failure in our lives and in the life of Peter. This is the account of what happens immediately following that very intimate dinner Jesus shared with his disciples we studied last week, that that Lord's Supper, that celebration of the Passover. And as they leave that meal, they sing a hymn and they go out to the Mount of Olives and beginning at verse 27, hear what Jesus says to his disciples. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And then at verse 43, after the time Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane, beginning at verse 43, he's arrested and betrayed. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him, Jesus, and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And then at verse 66, after Jesus is taken by force into the courtyard... As Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time and Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Amen. This is 
God's word. May he write it on our hearts. Let's look to him in prayer. Oh, Father, bless it to us. Help us to see ourselves in Peter and grant that we would see the grace of Jesus, our Savior. In his name we pray. Amen. So we want to think about temptation and failure in our own experience And it helps to see Peter and to see ourselves in Peter. He's the disciple that uh, I suppose most of us can relate to. He's the disciple whose um, outbursts uh, are frequently unthought through. He just says what comes to mind, though it gets him in trouble or he looks foolish or he has to take it back. His warts are on display in the Gospels. And yet he's kind of up and down in his experience. In, in all the way back in chapter 8, when Jesus is asking his disciples, well, who do, who do people say that I am? You know, do they say I'm Elijah or John the Baptist or who? And then he says, well, now who do you say that I am? And Peter bursts out on behalf of all the disciples. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He gets it right. Uh, he's like that sometimes. And yet, Here in verse 27, Jesus says, you're all going to fall away. And Peter says, that will never be me. I'm not going to. He's he's the prototype promise keeper in the Gospels. I'm not going to sin. I'm not going to do that thing, even if the rest of them do. Jesus says, well, no, Peter, you're going to. And in verse 30, he says, truly, I say to you this very night. Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And Peter says, no, Lord, even if I have to die, I'm not going to deny you. And, and then they all join in and say the same thing. But, but Jesus says, it's going to happen. And what you find over the course is this, this kind of up and down experience for Peter. They go out to the Garden of Gethsemane in beginning at verse 32. And Jesus Uh, is overwhelmed with sorrow and grief in his heart. And um, he he asks Peter and John and James to come along and be near him as he prays. And he just says to them, would you all stay awake? And of course, they all fall asleep. And so Jesus goes back to them and he wakes Peter up. And he he says to them, he says uh, to him, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And he goes off and he prays and Peter falls asleep again. So he has this this really down experience. But then Judas betrays Jesus with a kiss. And it says that somebody there grabs a sword and takes a blow at at, uh, the man who tries to arrest Jesus. Now John tells you that's Peter. Uh, He gets it right here. I mean, in the sense that he stands up with great courage and bravery, even to the point of being willing to to die with Jesus. I will not deny you, he had said. And he, though, misses the head of the guy. He doesn't get what he's looking for. And he actually slices down the side. He chops off the man's ear. And Jesus just reaches up and he heals that ear. And he says, put away your sword. This is not what my kingdom is about. So he kind of gets it wrong. So he's strong and he's brave. And, and in braveness or bravery, he, he follows Jesus uh, to where he's arrested. And he goes into the very courtyard. And then a maidservant, uh, a, a young girl, uh, 
says, you're one of his disciples. And Peter just wilts. And he denies it. He says, no, that's not true. He's quaking with fear. I, I, don't, I, don't know, I, I don't understand the meaning of your words. I don't even know what you're talking about, he says to her. And then this little maid says it again. And Jesus, uh, Peter denies Jesus. And then finally the, the crowd is listening and they can hear his accent. And they, they say, well, you're, you're one of those Galileans. You sound like one of his disciples. You must be. And Peter calls down on himself a curse and swears that he does not know this man. So Peter is up and down. He's strong and he's courageous and yet he's weak and he's fearful. He's faithful and he's unfaithful. Again and again in the span of one evening. And and I want to say to us that you and I are tempted like that as well. That Peter is an example for all of us of the ups and downs, the successes and failures of following Jesus. And no matter how often we promise I won't, we do. And no matter how often we promise we will, we don't. And that is the common experience of Christians, to fail and to be weak. And Peter here is way too self-confident, saying, I'm never going to deny you. I mean, think of the arrogance of that statement when your Lord has just said to you to your face, you are going to deny me. He's way too confident in himself. And so I want us to think about this passage in light of temptation and failure. And I got my outline from Dr. Derek Thomas, one of my professors in seminary. It's a wonderful outline on temptation and failure. You may not think it's a wonderful outline, but obviously I did. The first point is this. There are times when temptation will be severe and insistent. This girl, the servant girl says to him, you're one of them. And Peter denies it. And then she says it to him again. And you can almost imagine Peter saying, would you just be quiet? But really, again, you're back at me with this thing? And, and then he wilts under it and he denies it and it comes back. It's insistent. And that is not just true in Peter's experience. It's, it's true in Jesus' own experience. You remember in the wilderness at the very beginning of his public ministry, He's he's led by the Spirit of God into the wilderness to endure famine and temptation by the enemy of our souls. And again and again and again, Satan says to him, you know, if you're really the son of God, God wouldn't treat you this way. That's a paraphrase. But if you are really the son of God, why don't you prove it, Jesus? If you're really the son of God, why don't you turn rocks into food? Why don't you throw yourself off a tower and let the angels catch you? Why don't you take a shortcut to what God has promised you and just bow your knee to me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth. Again and again and again when he's all alone and isolated and has been without food, the temptation is insistent. This is what we mean. Temptation can be that way and it can be severe You know that Job experienced not just the loss of one, but all of his children, all in one day, instantly. Somebody once said that this is the experience of Christians because those whom God intends to use, he will try and he will test. Temptation and failure is a way of God showing us the impurities of, of our faith and what God intends to do in permitting us the experience of temptation and trial. 
is to show us the real us. So that in the pressure cooker, as it were, the the dross can be raised to the top, like when they purify gold. And they heat it in um, a hot pot and the, the solid gold falls to the bottom. But the impurities rise, being lighter, rise to the top and then they swipe it off the top to purify the gold. So God is in our experience allowing our, our weaknesses to be exposed. To expose our sin and our temptations to sin in order to rid us of the dross in our life, to show us our inner sinful self that we would cling more closely to Jesus. So I want to say to you, if you struggle with sin and the same sin again and again, and if you struggle with temptation that comes like one of those trick candles, you blow it out, you think you're done, and it comes right back at you. And if you find that your sinful nature seems to be at war, with the Spirit of God and the Spirit of God at war with your sinful nature, then you need to know this. That is part of discipleship. It's part of what it means to be a Christian. And Jesus is not abandoning you. Jesus is saying to you, you need me. And you need to cling to me. But Peter here was utterly, overly self-confident. And made promises he could not keep in his own strength. The second thing I want you to see is this. That we need to be realistic about our own ability to withstand temptation. Verse 29, Peter says, basically, I'm not like other people, Jesus. I'm not like other Christians. I'm not going to do what they do. And then the servant girl says, you're one of them? And he says, yeah. I don't know Jesus. The Bible is filled with stories of people who fail, believers who fail. You remember that Noah, after he, after he experiences salvation from the flood, he plants a vineyard and he gets drunk. You know that Abraham, after he receives precious promises of a kingdom and descendants without number, he lies about his wife saying she's my sister, not once but twice. You know that Moses, called to lead God's people, takes it upon himself to destroy the Egyptians and murders one. You know that King David commits adultery. King David has his, his, one of his best mighty men killed. If they can fail, we can fail. And we need to learn who we are. We also need to learn that our promises to God that rely on ourselves do not work. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12 says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands firm be careful, lest he fall. The guy who makes promises, I won't sin anymore is the guy who thinks he can stand up against temptation. We ought rather to be saying, I'm weak. I'm likely to fail. I'm likely to give in. That is who I am in myself. Because when you realize you're weak, then you can be strong in Jesus. But when you think that you are strong, then it is that you are weak. We need to be in the constant, constant posture 
of confessing honestly, like the hymn writers. This is one of the advantages of reading old hymns. They sometimes say things we don't say in our day. But they confess honestly, frail children of dust and feeble as frail. That's what we sing tonight. And, and Newton's hymn, weak is the effort of my heart and cold my warmest thought to you, Lord. Until I see you as I ought. Um, we ought to be saying, the Lord preserve me, the Lord protect me, the Lord lead me not in temptation, the Lord deliver me from evil. This should be our constant posture. Then we would sing as we're going to, Jesus, what a strength in weakness. Let me hide myself in him. Tempted, tried, and sometimes failing, he my strength, my victory wins. And so that's the second thing I want you to see. We need to be realistic about our own ability and our own strength to fight temptation. But we also need to recognize where temptation is likely to strike us. Temptation is likely to strike our besetting sins. Not the only place, but we all have certain kinds of sins we're more prone to in our own life. And that we're more prone to than others are. And they have other ones. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12 verse 1 speaks of this in, in, a, in, in one translation anyway. says, therefore since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off or lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily entangles, that's the NIV, or the sin that besets, I think that may be the King James, uh, the ESV has it, or the sin which clings so closely the idea being Christians have always believed that there are certain things in my life I'm more likely than you to be tempted by. We call those besetting sins and they come back again and again. And we need to be cautious and careful. What's Peter's besetting sin? You're actually seeing it on display here in this, these stories. It comes up again and again in his life. And what is it? It is that he is afraid of what other people think of him. Why do we say that? How do you see that? Well, why is he strong on the Mount of Olives when Jesus says you're all going to fall away? Because he's surrounded by other disciples who are friends and Jesus. And Peter values their opinion of him and so he seems fearless. Why is he weak before the servant girl? Because he's surrounded by enemies and he's all alone. And these people hate Jesus. And who knows what they'll do to his disciples? And so he fears their opinion. He cares what they think. And so he denies Jesus. This plays out years later in Galatians chapter 2. Peter's helping James and John lead the church in Jerusalem. And, and yet he won't eat with Gentile Christians in the church. He's pairing up at mealtime only with Jewish Christians. Why? Because he's afraid of what the Jews will say if he, being Jewish, eats with Gentiles. Even though he's already had the experience in the book of Acts, in which God tells him very dramatically, don't call unclean what is clean. There's this very dramatic experience in Peter's life when, when God says to him, look, I'm no, I'm no longer making this hard division between Jew and Gentile. And people from every tribe and tongue and nation will be part of my kingdom. 
So don't, he'll say to them, don't call foods unclean anymore. And Jesus makes all foods clean. Uh, and the foods were, were a stand-in. They were meant to teach the distinction between things so that they would learn the distinction between being Jewish and eating Jewish food and being Gentile and eating Gentile food. And God says to him, look, I'm wiping all, the way, all of that away in the kingdom of Christ. And Peter knows that. It's been 15 years at least that he's known that. And yet Paul goes to visit him in Antioch. And in Galatians chapter 2, he spots Peter only sharing intimate table fellowship. Friendship around a meal. Only with Christians of a Jewish ancestry. Because he fears what the Jews will say if he eats with the Gentiles. And Paul says, I called him on it. I, I, I opposed him to his face, Paul says, for not living in line with the gospel. Do you understand that this is, this is Peter's Achilles heel? He's afraid of what people think of him. I want to ask you, do you know yourself well enough to know your Achilles heel? Look, we're a young church plant, so we might as well just say it now. Your pastor has Achilles heels. I'm not going to tell you all of them tonight, but one that I have struggled with for 24 years of being a Christian is procrastination. It kills me. And it comes about partly because of laziness, partly because of an ungodly passivity over responsibilities that God has given to me. It comes about partly because the flesh opposes the spirit and the good that I would do, I do not do. And it comes about partly because you only see it in various areas of my life, but I'm actually a perfectionist. And and the way that perfectionism works in my experience is I don't want to start something because I I don't want to do it and not have it be perfect. And it kills me. It's always such a rebuke to me, but I love the saying of that great philosopher, Mary Poppins. Thank you. Who said, well begun is half done. And that just, that, that sits in my heart. Would that it were the case always in my experience, but it's not. I love that other saying of her as well. She says, enough is as good as a feast. Maybe that hits some of you. Look, 24 years as a disciple, I want to be done. With procrastinating, I want to be done with lust. I want to be done with depravity. I want to be done with indwelling sin. I want to be like Jesus. In my best moments, at least, I want to be that way. Don't you? And yet you struggle again and again with you. The point is, we have these besetting sins. Do you know yourself? What are yours? Is it greed or pride? Is it gluttony or sloth? Is it wrath or lust or envy or the fear of man or the fear of failure? What is it in your experience? Do you know yourself? If you do not know yourself, how will you ever arm yourself to fight in the day of temptation? To be watchful and ready and to lean on the strength of the Lord. Now, there's one last thing I want you to see in this experience with Peter, and that is that we need to see God's mercy to us in our failures. There is, 
As Derek Thomas says, there is no amount of failure that should make you conclude that the rest of your life is second best. You should not believe, if the gospel is true, you should not believe that, that the rest of your life is second best, God's second best to you. You should not believe I've ruined my life forever by my sin because Peter is here to say that Jesus is a compassionate, gracious, loving, faithful Savior who, though we abandon him, he does not abandon us. Though we deny him, he does not deny us. Though we are unfaithful, he remains faithful to his people. And we need to realize that God is actually sovereign over our failures. That he is on the throne and he hasn't abandoned it when we have failed him. That he's actually sovereign over our failures even in the midst of them. Listen, in a sinful world dealing with sinful broken people like us, God is the organizer. God is the restrainer. God is the governor and the permitter of sin among his people. He isn't off the throne when it happens. And and yet, of course, we are morally responsible for our sin. God says, you're responsible. And he offers his son to take what your sin deserves. Listen, we we can never turn around and say, well, because God is on his throne when I sin, it's his fault like Adam and Eve did in the garden, where they said, well, God, the the reason I ate this fruit is because you made it. Well, the reason I ate it is because she gave it to me. And oh, by the way, you made her. That this is your fault, God. God turns right around and says, no, Adam and Eve, you are responsible for your sin. But God isn't off his throne at the time. He's ruling and he's reigning and he's orchestrating. He's planning and he's purposing Good things, even amidst our failures. Jesus knew Peter was going to do this. He actually predicts at verse 27, you are going to fail. You're, going to flee. You're all going to flee. And he says, I, Jesus says, how do I know that? I'm, I'm quoting to you the Bible. The scripture says, strike the shepherd and the sheep will flee. It was ordained by God, written in the Bible ahead of time. Peter's responsible for his sin, but God isn't off his throne. Imagine for a moment if Peter hadn't failed like this. Imagine you're one of the other disciples. Might you have ever heard the end of it? I said I wouldn't fail him and I didn't. What happened to you guys? Where were you? Could you imagine trying to live with somebody like that? It would be insufferable. Now, maybe Peter would have been too gracious for that. I don't know. But, but we need leaders in the church who know themselves well, who understand their own failures and have failed. An early church leader named Gregory the Great said in the 500s about Peter, why did Almighty God permit the one he had placed over the church to be frightened by the voice of a maidservant and even to deny Christ. This we know was a great dispensation of divine 
mercy. So that he who was to be the shepherd of the church might learn through his own fall to have compassion on others. God therefore first shows him to himself and then places him over others to learn through his own weakness how to bear mercifully with the weakness of others. Failures, friends, they make us useful to the Lord to lead others to grace. And if you're a person who doesn't know his ongoing, continuing temptations, then maybe you don't know the grace and the power of Christ at work in your weakness. And how are you ever going to help anybody else? But finally, you've got to see this. You've got to recognize Jesus did not fail you. What a stark contrast at the end of the Gospels. Are you his disciple, they say to Peter? No. Are you the son of God, they say to Jesus? I am, he says. And he owns it. And for that, he is crucified. And he is crucified for our unfaithfulness. God accepts no one as righteous by the strength of their own promise keeping, friends. For we are weak and frail. But God accepts all who come to him by the promise keeping of Jesus. Who was cursed for us to get us to God. We need a God like that. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would show us to ourselves but come quickly with mercy when you do. Keep us from the foolishness of believing that will ever be done with sin in this life. Keep us, we pray, from the despair of the enemy who would sow in our hearts the idea that because we have failed, you hate us. Keep us, we pray, from the arrogant pride of believing that we can fight sin in our own strength. Oh, would you forgive us Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, let me invite you to respond to the Lord. We're going to stand and sing our closing hymn while the ushers come forward and pass the plate during the hymn. And on the last stanza, let me invite the Scott and Cindy McClymans family to come forward to take their vows as church members. Let's stand and sing to the Lord.